this is an important commandment. It's an important commandment in the 10. And um, it is an imperative commandment. God says, you shall not commit murder. And part of what we're going to explore today is uh, why we shouldn't commit murder, but also importantly, what is murder? <laughs> it, we can take it for granted and, and miss some of what the commandment's about. What is murder? To start off, I'd love us to have a bit of a conversation on what life actually is. If you're a Christian, what do you believe life is? Now, if you're a Christian, the source of life is God himself. The pattern for life is God himself. So life for a Christian looks like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It looks like the Father loving the Son and giving to the Son absolutely everything that the Father has. The Son loving the Father and giving to the Father absolutely everything that the Son has. And the Spirit being the gift of the Father to the Son and the gift of the Son to the Father, receiving and giving in equal measure. Life does not exist on its own. Life does not exist on its own. So, when someone asks you, are you alive? They're asking, do you exist among others? Do you exist among others? I think it's important that this commandment comes straight after the commandment to honor your father and mother, straight after the commandments about honoring God, and taking the time in the Sabbath to ponder those connections, because life doesn't exist on its own. Um, I've had many conversations with people who are contemplating ending their own lives, and this is the one thing I point them towards, that you are not on your own. Your life is yours because the Father is giving it to you completely out of love. The Son is making sure it stays yours completely out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So you have the Father giving you life, the Son giving you life, the Spirit giving you life from the beginning in Genesis to now. Life does not exist on its own. So even the life that you have is not just your own. You being alive is a work of someone else. So, life doesn't exist on its own. What does that mean for this particular commandment? in the face of things like war, in the much tougher conversations about abortion, euthanasia. What does it mean for us? How do we take our understanding of life and apply it to these things? I must admit to you guys one thing. I am 33 years old. I've barely lived long enough to have encountered all the complexities of life. So I won't stand here and give you an answer. All I'm going to do is tease out from the theological understanding of what life is 
a framework for us to approach these more difficult questions. A framework for us to approach these more difficult questions. So, the first one is killing in war a disobedience of this command. My immediate instinct was, yes, it is. You shouldn't kill in a war. But there's a distinct difference between killing and murder. Now, there's a, a, a church father called Augustine, and he did a lot of work on uh, just wars and when it was right and proper for a nation or a group of people to intervene for the sake of others. So is it okay if we sit still and let atrocities happen on the street next to us? No, actually. There's culpability both ways. Is it okay if we say nothing when our own state is doing something that other people are suffering for? No, it's not okay. But if, if it moves from intervening to save life to taking life for a resource or any other reason, then it shifts from the space of giving life to the space of murder, taking life. And we will have to weigh for ourselves how we as Christians think and feel about that so that we can contribute to the conversation on a state level about situations like that. So for an example would be um, the death penalty. Uh, is it okay to take someone's life who has taken someone else's life? Christian who believes in Jesus and in God would say no, because actually that's not going to restore life. You see, whereas is it okay to take someone's life who is on his way to take other people's lives? That's a different kettle of fish altogether because it involves the preservation of life. But you'd have to weigh that yourself in the situation and come before the throne of God himself. Who is the giver of life and the arbiter of what's right or wrong? I say that to say this. Bad things happen when good people do nothing. So do not ignore the news. Do not ignore what's going on across the globe, across the country. We are currently in the space where there is knife crime uh, in, in our city, taking lives. There is a question to us as Christians about what we can do by either saying something, by voting for someone when elections come around, by welcoming the stranger and showing love and hospitality, especially to those who are in desperate need for it by how we, we deal with people who are in prison, facing prison, or, or how we respond to the social inequalities that contribute to the circumstances that would bring people to the stage where they have to carry knives. I know a teacher who teaches in a school in um, Croydon, and she says it's hard for her to say to the children not to come to school with a knife, because she knows the journey from their home to the school requires them to have a knife. 
Croydon's 25 minutes drive away from Chiswick. If we disconnect from the fuller story of what's going on, then we enter that space of conveniently disregarding circumstances that culminate in the loss of life. So this commandment isn't just about what we do personally. So if we abstain from murder during Lent and don't kill anybody during Lent, it doesn't mean we've fulfilled completely the calling of this commandment. And perhaps the journey for us over the next 40 days, especially in regard to this, is going to be to ask, what is it that I can do to reduce the needless loss of life from the place where I am? And if the one thing you can do really well is to get down on your knees and talk to the king of kings about this, then you, you do that instead of listening to the archers or whatever it is you do in your spare time and actually dedicate that time to ask God to intervene in the situation. Do you see? Then that's one side move to the more difficult, other difficult one, which is the, 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 the conversation on abortion. Now here, I have encountered uh, a young girl who it would have wrecked her life completely to have the child that she was due to have. She would have lost her life. And I've also encountered uh, the child who was found on a rubbish heap. This is a hard place to walk. And I acknowledge, I look around here, there's only two men here, I'm ignoring those guys over there. <laughs> um, it is hard for me as a man to talk about this. It's very hard because I don't know what it's like to bear a child or to have the, the, the potential of bearing a child myself or even the pain of having lost one. I, I wouldn't know what that feels like. So hear this with as much sensitivity as I can muster. This is a conversation on life and what life looks like and what the Lord of life calls us to live our lives as. And I'm only offering that as a space for us to think through what our choices and decisions are going to be. Not just for us and our children and kin, but for the many, 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 many children who lose their lives both in giving birth to children before they are old enough, but also uh, to parents who, for convenience, decide otherwise. Now, if life looks like the connectedness between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and our life looks like the connectedness between the Father and the Son, then our calling in life, in living, is to seek that connectedness with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and define ourselves by that. and define ourselves by that. When we encounter a difficulty, the conversation isn't about what are we going to do for us. It's about how are we going to stay faithful to God because he stays faithful to us, even when we are nailing him on the cross. So in the space where you're having to decide, it's worth remembering this life is not my own that I have that child's life is not their own, that they have. It is God's. It is God's. How does he demonstrate this to us? Well, the two points of his life that are of great importance, his birth and his death, 
show us how he's going to approach being born and how he's going to approach dying. To approach being born, what does he do? He goes to the least of the least of the least of the least. And what does he say to her? He says to her, forego the life that you had planned before you because here is another one that I am giving you. For you to be the mother of Jesus, you will not be what you thought you were going to be. And I don't know what Mary's dreams were, but she had found herself a good husband. He was a hardworking man. He was a carpenter. He was going to provide for her a place to stay. She was going to have a quiet life somewhere. Nothing to do with fame. Nothing to do with being known. Nothing to do with seeing her son die on the cross. Nothing to do with wise kings from the Middle East coming to her door shortly after she's She's given birth to her child. Nothing to do with a little boy who doesn't want to go in the bath and can walk on water. She had a different dream. But the angel comes and says, here you are. Define yourself by God. Can you do that? And we have this lovely prayer, the Magnificat, which is worth reading and reflecting upon, where she ponders what it's going to mean for her to have been chosen for this purpose. God gives himself into the fragile space of being looked after by someone else. He joins the many children who are nurtured in a womb and given birth to. Do you know human beings are the only species where a child needs six years before they can find independence? The only species. Every other animal is much less than that, by far. Six years. Life is not life on its own. So as soon as a child is conceived, the question now becomes, how are you going to define yourself? Are you going to define yourself by you? Or are you going to define yourself by the child and God and the connectedness of life? This is a hard space to work out what to do. And I know the difficulties in there. Um, examples, for instance, if um, the conception of the child was not what you expected. Um, I've encountered people who were raped, for instance, who are carrying the child of the person who assaulted them. Um, how do you navigate that space? How do you navigate that space? The challenge becomes... How do I walk in the connectedness of my being? Connectedness with God, connectedness with this child who is vulnerable in my space, and connectedness with those around me. And Jesus, at the end of his life, gives us a clue by saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He opts not to step off the cross, which he can very easily do. He opts not to reset the universe, which he can very easily do. But he opts to love. And what is love? Love is the choice to be connected in our actions, in our being. Not only with the people around us, but with the God who made us. So he opts for love. Very, very tricky situation because circumstances may arise where it's either the child or the mother who lives. And you have to weigh those decisions out. 
like I said, I'm not giving answers. I'm just giving a framework from which we can think about how to approach these things. So over Lent, as you consider not committing murder, can I suggest also that you consider looking into the statistics on this. You consider looking into the politics on this. You consider praying into this. And you consider how the person you're going to vote for next time the elections come around is going to impact these things. Because when we do nothing, we bear culpability. Is that a good place to think on that one? I'll leave you with that one. The last one is euthanasia, which is where... Um, the spectrum for this is broad. It's from where a doctor will say, there's nothing I can do medically for this person. Um, uh, actually, all I can do is mitigate the circumstances of their living so that they can die peacefully by medicating them or withdrawing medication. All the way to the, the furthest end of the scale where someone says, um, I want to choose when I'm going to die. I want to choose when I'm going to die for very many different reasons, very many different reasons. The framework, again, for a Christian comes back to that point where we ask, what is life? What is life? If life truly is a connectedness with God, because he's the one who sustains the breath that you have, then the question isn't about, I want to choose when to die. The question is about, when is he going to call me home? When is he going to stop sustaining me? When is he going to decide for me to move? And here's why I, I've, I've skipped from there to here regarding the doctors, is because at this point, the judgment doesn't fall on the doctor. He's not the one who decides whether the person lives or dies. He just decides how someone is going to have the last days of their life. On this end is someone deciding to end a life, which as I've tried to sort of say at the beginning, it's not a human decision for us to do that. It's obviously complex also, so this has a vast spectrum. The Archbishop of York um, uh, did a walk around York, uh, and um, on his way, uh, he was going to walk past a hospice and in this hospice was a lady who had been given, I think it was 13 days to live or something like that, or, or something less. And uh, the, the staff came to see him as he was walking past and said, could you come and uh, say a prayer with this lady? So he goes with his stick, John Sentum, walks in there, he's got his archbishop's sort of thing that he wears for his walk, and he goes and he sits down. The lady has not eaten for a long time, they're worried she's going to die. So he sits there and uh, he prays the Lord's Prayer. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. By the time he says, Thy kingdom come, she joins him, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Life springs back into her. She lives for another 17 days. In the 17 days, she converts, I think it's 13, 14 people to be Christians. In the death throes of her life, she fulfills more in terms of ministry than most people do in a lifetime. I say that to say this. God's giving of life has its purpose. It's never empty. It's never empty. 
If he's giving it, there's a reason he's giving it. And the main reason he's giving it is because you have within you his life and his light to share with the world. Suffering and testing and trouble only comes to expose that light even more. Why? Because perseverance breeds what? Character. Character hope, the disciple says. You could achieve more in the last few seconds of the life that God has given you than you did in your whole entire life. And when you go against God's decision to keep you living, you rob yourself of the joy of standing before him to say, Father, this is what I did with the three coins that you gave me. This is what I did. I didn't hide it in the ground. Actually, I tried to shine as bright as I could in all the days that I had. It's a small commandment. You shall not commit murder. So simple, but so complicated at the same time. And here's where I'm going to sort of finish. The choice we all face every day is not so far away from this commandment. When Jesus is asked about murder, what does he say? Whoever says to their brother, Raka, in anger, has committed murder. So if you're angry at someone, you've already failed this commandment. Why? Because anger at someone is a direct contradiction of what love towards someone is supposed to be. Anger asks you to take from someone something. Life and love ask you to give someone something. So when Jesus says, in your anger, do not sin, what is he saying? In your anger, do not take from someone. Even if the anger is about justice, mercy is a different way of doing things. Grace is a different way of doing things. God is a God of giving. He names something that is wrong, but he gives more than he has ever received. He names something that is incomplete, but he gives more than he has ever received. And the question we're faced with this particular commandment is, are we going to give more than we receive, or are we going to take? So that if we're sitting in silence while madness is happening across, across the globe, then we are receiving something by not trying to give. If we don't respond to the anger within us and move to the space of forgiveness, then we stay in the space of not obeying that commandment and lose out on the joy of generosity. Why are Christians generous? Because they are the recipients of generosity. Why are Christians generous? Because they have received absolutely everything from the Father, demonstrably everything from the Son, his breath, his blood, his body, his place in the kingdom of heaven, his seat next to the Father, and the name to be called children of God. So the call is generosity in love or action in selfishness. Generosity in love or action in selfishness. That's the Christian framework from which we ponder all these different small, complex circumstances that we will face. Now, I'm going to pray, and the reason I'm going to do that is because I know that my own family listen to the sermons that I'm speaking on 
here. They do. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, in my family, uh, there is everything. Everything from the child soldier uh, to the, 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 the lady who was raped. There's everything in my own immediate family. Like, you know, the, everything involved. To those who've lost children at miscarriages, to those who um, were adopted because they were abandoned on the rubbish heap. So my prayer here is actually to bring all those circumstances to God because I would hate to finish here without really hammering the point home that God is the God who, if you come to him and are honest about who you are, how you're feeling, he will embrace, forgive, and lead you in the way everlasting. Nothing is away from his gaze. And he sees all, judges all, loves all, and redeems all. So let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, would you teach us to be foolish and simply look to you? Would you teach us to be simple and foolishly give to you, to give to you our worries, our cares, our concerns, our regrets, our um, unfulfilled hopes, our confusion, the honesty of our disobedience. ask that you receive who we are now as we engage with some of what your word is drawing out of us today. By your Holy Spirit, would you free us from guilt, free us from sin, teach us the way of generosity, and give us wisdom to discern what is right to do moment by moment by moment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.